0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 6 through 13, and uh, we've been doing a study, for those of you who are here for the first time, we've been doing a study through the um, the, the book of 1 Thessalonians. We are now in chapter 3, getting ready to it, finish it, and then move on to chapter 4. But as I've found, as I've studied the various sections, they're all related, they're all connected, but each one stands alone. And, and so I hope that today is going to be an encouragement to you. It kind of switches gears. So I'm going to go back, and I'm going to read uh, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, so that you can kind of catch the feel for what, where the Apostle Paul is. And let me remind you that he had been with this group of believers for, for three weeks— And then he had to leave suddenly, and so for for months after that, he was extremely concerned with their spiritual welfare. And we hear this in chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Listen to it uh, before we come to the passage that's before us today. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, he's talking about we, his two other companions, Silas and Timothy, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to do something for them, to establish and to exhort you in the faith. That no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this, to be involved in afflictions. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Now, a huge shift, change of gears. Look at this. But now, after months, Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers... In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now, we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly day and night that we might see your face, you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that we may be established, we may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Father, I thank you. I thank you even for the the bumps and the uh, little glitches that we have even here. Everything's supposed to run like we've planned it, and it's just like life, Lord. There are so many times when it just doesn't work out that way. So we, we rejoice even in the midst of these kinds of things, knowing that you are at work. You're always at work. So no matter what we're going through, we know that. We know that you have a word for us today, and we pray that you would give us that word. And Lord, we pray for Melissa. Things have not worked out uh, exactly as she had planned, but Lord, she knows, she trusts you in the midst of these delays and these little, again, bumps in the road. We thank you for these four young men. We praise you that they are listening, that they're growing in faith, these young men who, as some would say, they're on the wall for us in other places of this world, but Lord, they are trying to plug into you. And and so we bless them in the name of Jesus for that and ask you to bring blessings upon them, even in the midst of a pretty challenging job. And so Lord, we thank you that we can pray for these, our sister and our brothers in Christ. May you do your work and your will in them according to your will and meet every need that they have according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus, we pray in His name. Amen. You may be seated I don't always reference movies I don't preach sermons for movies. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I, I wanted to uh, reference a movie today because it it just seemed to fit, particularly a a, a part of it that has actually become uh, a a meme, a fairly common saying. The movie, uh, not that I'm recommending, it was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Now, what I was intrigued about this movie uh, with was this, that the theme was eternal life. And so the whole thrust of the movie was that these folks could gain eternal life by finding the Holy Grail, which is the cup out of which Jesus drank at the Last Supper, supposedly. So if you've seen it, you will probably recognize where I'm going because toward the end of the movie, they come to this cave and there's a knight who's watching, who's been guarding for many years all of these cups, many beautiful gold with all kinds of of, of jewels and things like that, and they've got to choose which one is the cup, the Holy Grail, because it can give life, it can give eternal life. And so this the bad guy finds one that's beautiful, again, gold and jewels and things like that, and he says, this is it, this is it, and he drinks it. Now, for, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, it, it's just, it, it, it's almost a sight thing as much as it is a, a verbal thing. The guy drinks it, all of a sudden he feels really good and then things go south and he starts to feel really, really bad and he starts to look really, really bad. And he basically shrivels up and turns to dust and then the dust blows away. And the next scene is the old knight saying, about like this, he chose poorly. Now, if you know the rest of the story, Indiana Jones picks a very simple wooden cup, symbolic of a carpenter. He takes a drink, he gets the water, and he says, the old knight says, you chose Wisely. Let me lay before you something before we actually get into the text. Romans one twenty-five gives us <laughs> I'm so sorry for all of the, the, the things. I had to adjust that. It kept falling off my ear. Romans one twenty five. I hope I can get through this sermon. Paul reminds us of something. There are only two religions in life. Now, this is going somewhere connected with what we are reading about the the Thessalonians. There are only two religions in life. Do you see it there? I'm going to read it in just a second. And I'm going to throw this out too. There are only two ways to get to God. Now, that may throw some of you, but hang on. Romans 1.25, and we're going to come back to this this verse and this concept in chapter 4 because it is huge. The implications for us in this day and time are huge. This is referencing all of mankind. Here's what it says. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and... Here's one religion, they worshiped and served the creature, that which is created rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, I said these represent the only two religions, and by the way, the only two ways to get to God. And some of you who've looked at that said, what? You're not teaching there's another way through the worship of idols and things like that to get to God. Well, let me tell you something. If you choose that route, you will stand before God, but not as your Savior, but as your judge. Paul not only represents this reality in the whole book of 1 Thessalonians, but throughout the New Testament, we see this. What happens to an an individual or a culture, this this is going to be a cue for next week and a couple of weeks from now, and if you read on your own later on the rest of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, don't do it right now, you do it as preparation for a couple of weeks from now. Paul basically had begun his ministry in Thessalonica preaching in the synagogue, but there were some pagans who had listened in. This was a culture in Macedonia. The the, the whole culture was saturated in idolatry. And the message was simple but radical. Stop worshiping idols and start serving God. Now remember when he said stop worshiping and serving idols, he meant... Even, Jesus, even Julius Caesar, and worship and serve the only true God, Jesus Christ. Now, according to the people that did idolatry, it was okay to add another god to your collection. So it was okay to add Jesus to your collection of other idols and gods. You could say, I worship Jesus, as long as you also said, Caesar is Lord and you poured out a drink offering to him. The Thessalonians didn't do that. They chose wisely, and the gospel transformed them. Paul, writing in the first chapter, if you remember this, he said, you turned to God from idols to serve the living God. So while we in America... I'm talking about our culture right now, expanding it out a little bit. We, we really don't, we can't, right here this morning, we can't feel the weight of that decision. But Paul did, and he was deeply concerned. You see, if someone receives the gospel today and is saved their life, I'm talking about in our country, their life for the most part is good. Now, by the way, I am not a doomsayer, but that that could change in my lifetime. It was difficult then, and it is difficult now in some places. In fact, Back in chapter 1, he says this, you received the Word even as you were receiving it in much affliction. And that's why Paul expressed the concern that we read about in chapter 3 a few minutes ago. He knew that the, 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 the church, the believers at Thessalonica had started well, but the question was this, would they continue in the face of affliction? And this at the hands of their former friends. Let me just stop here and and, and talk to you a little bit because I don't know that you've considered this. And again, it's hard for us unless we have been overseas or we know people who've shared about what it's like to serve in places where the gospel is hated. Why do people react so violently to this thing that we call good news? Now, if you're just telling them that Christianity is one among many ways to achieve temporal happiness and even eternal happiness, that's not offensive. Like I said a few minutes ago, that's just one more idol. But, now now stay with me here, imagine this, if you're going into a place in another culture and you are are telling them, which you are basically, you're telling them that their own religion, and and, and think about this, their own religion, which to them is a precious tradition that has been handed down from their parents and their grandparents and for generations. And you are coming in and you're telling them that their religion is wrong and that yours is right. Now, I've discovered from being overseas that, that initially people will receive you simply because people in, in many other cultures, are they're just polite. But when you begin to get down to brass tacks, unless the Lord is doing, through the power of the Word and the Holy Spirit, a work in their lives, when you start getting down to the reality of what that means, that you've got to leave your religion You've got to stop worshiping and serving the God or the gods you've been serving, whether that's Muhammad or a pantheon of other gods, and you've got to start worshiping and serving Jesus Christ alone. Do you understand why they get angry? They may not say it, But they'll be thinking it, and if you can get in a situation, a certain situation, they will say it to you. They've said it to me. How dare you? That is an unforgivable insult, an offense. You're attacking their national identity. You're attacking their culture. And right now, in some countries, they are initiating hate crimes follow me that make it a crime for you to share the gospel with people in that culture they say it's a hate crime you really in fact hate them places like turkey where we have a lot of work north korea i could just go down the list afghanistan somalia libya those are the five hot spots by the way that are listed there's a lot of talk in mission circles about being a Muslim-based believer. In other words, that you can believe in Jesus and you can go back to your, to, to your temple, to your mosque. We've asked our pastor, Pastor Orhan, who's in Turkey, about that. He said, yeah, but if you go into a mosque and you're saying Jesus is Lord, I promise you, you won't stay in the mosque very long. They'll run you out at best, maybe even kill you. And so here's one thing, and Paul was convinced of this, and you've got to see a picture of this. We must be convinced that the people to whom we claim Christ are held captive, we read about this, to the lies of Satan, and that they are damned to an eternity in hell as a result of that, and that those who don't receive the message of the gospel will oppose it even vigorously, even to the point of killing you. And, and really, that, that's the only explanation. When we come to verse 6, all of this that is preceded in, in this, this study that we've been doing, and we come to verse 6, and we read that, And we read up to verse 13, that's the only explanation for the impact that Timothy's good report had on them. Remember what he said a few minutes ago? I I could bear it no longer. I could bear it no longer. And so we sent Timothy, because after three weeks, they left. And he had been gone months. And Timothy came back. And that's why there was such great rejoicing, because he brought what and you look at it in verse 6 he came with good news of their faith and love when i saw that i thought of proverbs 2525 25, and how how good good news can be like cold water to a thirsty soul we're going through a little bit of a heat wave it was nice this morning a little bit of a heat wave Right here in Oklahoma City, if any of you been out working or doing something and you got parched, you got thirsty, and you came in and if somebody handed you a glass of lukewarm water and you took a big swig, how did that make you feel? Not very good, but if somebody handed you a big mug with ice-cold water, as it went down, you could feel it, right? All the way down. Like cold water. I, I wondered when I looked at that, um, that, that proverb, I wondered how they really got it. Did they go up to the spring and did you run with it down so it was still cool? I don't know, but they got it right. Cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news. And that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. It was good news. There was a sense of relief that turned to rejoicing that their faith and their love had survived the hostility from former friends. Now, again, that came as a result of a massive shift, and and this is going to happen. So, no matter what your age, a lot of times I'll do this and I'll turn to our students to make sure that you get it and you don't waste a lot of years like some people in this room have. But you have to understand that, that, that receiving the gospel of Christ results in a massive shift in your worldview, how you see life, and in your lifestyle. And, and this is what we were referring back to. This is what the Apostle Paul wanted for the, the Thessalonians. It's what he would want since this book is for us, for us, for this is the will of God your sanctification. We're going to talk about that next week, next several weeks, Lord willing. That you're growing in holiness, that you that you're thinking more like Jesus and you're living more like Jesus and then that's the first great commandment. Second great commandment is filled in with the words you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So they had chosen wisely at least according to the Apostle Paul, but not according to their friends. Their friends would have seen it differently, their new worldview. Remember again, generations of idol worshiping. We've said this over and over again, but we'll say it over and over again, that true faith is not just an outward or an intellectual agreement with a set of beliefs. It had changed their hearts and then it changed their lifestyle. So what happened when their lifestyle changed? Well, they stopped going to the pagan temple. They stopped doing sacrifices. They rejected the idolatry. Now, now try to put yourself in that place where you had grown up, and these were most likely adults of different ages, and you had grown up with your friends going to the pagan temple and offering the sacrifices together and going out and having a good steak from the meat that was sacrificed to the idol, and then... All of a sudden, I'm talking about this is a quick turnaround, a radical shift, and their lifestyle changed. They no longer went back to the pagan temple. They no longer offered sacrifices. How do you think their friends reacted to that? Peter writes a, a wonderful summary. These next two, I'll put up two slides on this. Where he just kind of grabs the whole thought of what Paul is referring to here. He says this, you're no longer doing what the Gentiles want to do. And then he lists a couple of things. This is not an exhaustive list, but it is a good list. Living in situality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And then this, this shows why there was such an attack on them. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, again, in our country, we have not experienced a a lot of that kind of thing. But maybe, in part, we have. Some of you know my story. I'm not going to go back and recount the whole thing. There, there, is, there are things that I really, really am glad for in my past, and there are things that I deeply regret, even though I know God is weaving all of those things together for good and for His glory. But I was raised in church and then dropped out of church for a number of years. And it wasn't until when I was in college that, that through a series of events that God began, the Holy Spirit began to bring back the Word to my heart. And, and I, I saw that this was true, and I began following Christ again. And, and there were changes in relationships. I remember one of my best friends, and this, this was true of, of all of my friends, I couldn't wait to tell them about following Jesus, and not all of them said this, but I'll never forget when one of them did. I was sharing with him, and I could see this look on his eye, and in his eyes, and a look on his face, and I stopped, and I said, Steve, I, I have the feeling that you, you really don't want to hear about this. Is that, is that right? He said, yeah, yeah, I really wish you wouldn't talk to me about that. It wasn't long before there was not much of a friendship. I'd been in a fraternity. And one of, the, one of the things that I really wanted to do was go back and talk to the guys in that fraternity about my newfound faith in Jesus Christ. And I would go up. I didn't live in the house at that time. I lived someplace else, and I would go to school, go to work, and then I would, I would go back and eat dinner. And then I would go from room to room sharing Christ with different guys. And I, you know, there there was at least one guy, a good friend of mine that that, uh, came to faith in Christ, and that was all good. But he told me later on, years later, he said, hey, Brown, I got to tell you this. When people saw you coming up the steps of that fraternity house, they would say, oh, no, Brown's coming, and he's going to talk more about that Jesus stuff, and they would go out the back door. Relationships change. Is that a surprise? Don't we know that according to 1 John, we know that we are from God and the whole whole world, not just our friends and family. Our whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that, and Paul knew that. So that's why he was so genuinely concerned, because he knew the enemy. That's what he refers to in chapter 5, the tempter tempting, and that his ministry to them might have been in vain. Now, folks, th- that's true for every place. And I said earlier, I, I don't know this, I am not a prophet but I look at God's Word and I look at all of the things that it says, in every place in the world, if Satan can do it, he is going to turn up the heat. That could be in our country too. That's why the verse that I shared with you last week is one of the greatest encouragements. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world and has power over the world. So, Paul is is grateful. They've passed the test. They are walking with the Lord. Their faith and their love, Timothy reports, is strong. They're standing steadfast. But then, again, he changes a little bit of his thought, and he immediately goes into prayer for them. Now. I'm just going to talk you through a little bit of this because I read through this and I realized something. First of all, except for a very, very few of you mature saints who have really locked into prayer, I would say that the average Christian, for the average Christian, that prayer really is a kind of ministry. Excuse me. It is a ministry, but what I meant to say is it's a mystery. Here's the reality. I know you all pray, but likely the majority of you feel like that you don't pray enough or you don't pray well enough. And just like when preachers get up and start talking about witnessing, usually when they get up and start talking about praying Most of the people feel guilt, and that's not what I want to happen. We know we ought to pray. We know we ought to pray individually and together as couples and together as families and together as the church. And so what I want to do is just walk you through the elements of what Paul says about prayer. This was his prayer life. And I think it would be a good model for us as well. Start with verse 10, and we find two things in there that that are instructive for us. First of all, he prays with intensity. He says, most earnestly in my prayers. And he prays with incredible frequency. He says, night and day. And I begin to think about my own prayer life. Do I pray with the intensity? And I'm, I'm talking about not only for myself, but my, my, my family, my wife, my children, my grandchildren. Do I pray most earnestly? Does the majority of the church in America pray earnestly? Are you crying out to God? Oh, God, here's this family member, here's this church member, and they so desperately need you. Or is it more of a quick, God bless mommy and God bless daddy. Amen. And he mentions frequency. He says night and day. Now, I don't think that Paul sat down had a prayer list, but I think that in his mind, in his heart, he was constantly breathing out the names of those people that he loved and that he wanted to stand fast in the Lord. He was praying most earnestly, and he was praying night and day. For what? We go on in verses 10 and 11, to see them and to equip them. He says this, and he says it a couple of times, to see you face to face, may God direct our way to you and supply what is lacking in your faith. Uh, now let me just say this, and I know that there are those of you who are at home listening to this today, and even though it's comfortable, some of you have shared that with me, that it's it's really nice to be able to put me on pause, to go to the bathroom or to get a cup of coffee or whatever, and then go back and sit down. Prop your feet up and get comfortable again and listen to the rest of the sermon. I know that. That's good. But let me say this. In the heart of every, everyone that I've talked to, while there is that advantage, everyone who I've talked to that can't get back has said, I long, I long to be back with the brothers and sisters in Christ. Just talked this morning with a couple of people who have not been back since we shut down originally, and they hunger, they desire. I'll say something else. I have, I have never met, because I don't believe they exist, I have never met a vibrant, spirit-filled, Christ-following Christian who stays away from church. You know why? Why? Again, I just don't think there is such a person. When God saves us, he gives us that desire to be with one another. And, and and even if it's just coming on a Sunday morning and fellowshipping in this context, and usually it's deeper, not with everyone in the church, but with those to whom your heart is, is drawn, you want to get together and fellowship. Not just to, to, to talk but, as Paul says, to supply what is lacking in your faith. Why? Verse 12, praying that those people might increase and abound in love for one another and for all, not just for those in the church, but for all men. In verse 13, that their hearts might be established and blameless in holiness before God at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, There are different kinds of prayers, and we pray for a lot of different things. But I think contained in what Paul says here, there is a a step in a direction that many of us need to hear. Now, when I read through that and then I just walked through it again, I, I want you to notice something. Paul never says anything about the severe affliction they were going through to go away. Now, now hear me on this, please. Am I saying that it's wrong to pray that the COVID virus would go away? Well, really, I think that all depends. What's the motive behind that prayer? Is it so the economy will come back and the stock market will go up and maybe we'll get back to normal, meaning that I can go where I want, when I want? Or are we asking that primarily so that God can complete His purpose in using this time as He sees fit? There's another thing that I see, and and we pray probably... Most often about this, there is nothing in his prayer about a health situation or someone getting a new job. Nothing about them being bothered by their situation and wanting the Lord to make it better. Now, please, again, don't mishear what I'm saying. It's not wrong to pray for health issues or for a new job or for things to get together but we uh, to get better but we have to look and ask ourselves the question what do we pray most often about these things are not unimportant we need to pray for them but what i'm saying is according to the prayer that paul prayed don't stop there Many of us have learned that underlying these kinds of prayer are what one author, John Piper, and I've quoted him in your worship guide, calls warfare praying. And I think this is absolutely significant. He says in his his book, I I recommend this, if you're interested at all in, in any kind of mission endeavor, Get the book, Let the Nations Be Glad, because he has a whole chapter in there on prayer. And, and here's what he says about knowing what prayer is. We cannot know that what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Now, from that statement, I want to read to you. Follow along with me while I go over this quote, the last one on the quotes on your sermon outline. Life is war. Would you agree with that? That's not all it is, but it is always that. He basically is saying what I've been trying to say for the last few minutes. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not surprising that prayer... Malfunctions. Let me just stop right there. If you've ever wondered, why, why don't my prayers, why aren't they more effective? I think he gives an answer here. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Through prayer, God has given us a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. As I prepared this sermon this week, and knowing that that, that we have been and we are being involved in prayer as a church, but I had to ask myself the question, I wonder what would happen if each of us would take this one quote about the purpose of prayer, and begin praying over things, as Paul says, most earnestly, night and day, for ourselves, for our families, for our church, and for other believers. Said at the, on, at the beginning, the outset of, of this message, that really there are only two religions. I used a silly illustration about he chose poorly, and then he chose wisely. It's obvious that the Thessalonians had chosen wisely, but it's just as obvious that Paul wanted them to continue in how they had started because he knew that ultimately they would stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at His coming. You see, this is tied to the second coming of Christ. And so let me just ask you this morning, going back to Romans chapter 1 and verse 25, have you chosen wisely? Or have you chosen poorly? Are you following Jesus Christ right now? Have you seen the reality of your own sin before a holy God? Have you seen Jesus as the only solution, not idols, not religion, not anything else? And have you made that decision to follow him? The Lord's Supper symbolizes our only hope, symbolizes the reality of Jesus Christ and his death on Calvary's cross for sinners like us. I want you to bow your heads, if you would, please, and I'm going to pray, and, and then after that, we're going to take our cups, and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. By the way, is, is I'm praying this prayer, if you did not receive a cup, you would like to take the Lord's Supper with us, if you're not a member of our church, but you are a member of the body of Christ, we welcome you to be a part of this time of communion. So you can raise your hand and they will get a cup to you. Raise them high so that they can get a cup to you. Let me pray and then we will enter into a time of taking the Lord's Supper. Father, I thank you and I praise you that you have given to us everything we need, your Bible says, for life and for godliness. I thank you that we in no way have to earn our salvation, not through the prayers we pray, not through our witness. Those flow out of the reality of a changed life. But Father, I thank you that you, through giving your Son, as the sole sacrifice for sin, have accomplished what we could never do. So, thank you, Lord, as we now begin to take the Lord's Supper, I pray that if there is anyone here today who has never responded to the Lord Jesus Christ, to that wooing by His Holy Spirit, that today would be the day of salvation. That that person would say, I know that I'm a sinner, I know what I deserve, and I turn to Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross. Let today be that day when that person chooses wisely And it will be for the rest of their life and for eternity. So I thank you for that and pray now that as we observe these elements, help us, Lord, to see the impact of the gospel on our lives. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.